This morning, we want to return to Philippians chapter 3. So I'd invite you to turn there. Philippians chapter 3, you may remember a few Sundays ago, I preached out of verse 7. This conversion experience that Paul has is described in one verse. But today I want to continue on through verses 8 through 11. And so let's take a moment here and read from God's word verses. I'll begin in verse 7 again and to the end of verse 11 where Paul writes to the Philippians. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What a beautiful portion of scripture Paul gives to us. Of these verses, John Owen wrote, this is a divine expression of that frame of heart, of that design which is predominant and efficacious in them unto who Christ is precious. And we see here in chapter three, Paul really sharing his personal testimony. And in in doing so, his heart is laid bare for the reader. And we see him really describe to us the outward expression of his entire life. His is an intimate relationship with Christ, a relationship that predominates. It is effectively dictating how the apostle lives day to day. And why is this? Well, it's because to Paul... Christ is his single greatest treasure. And you'll notice here in chapter 3 that Paul's purpose for writing is clearly visible. And this is a purpose that I have stated here before, but we see it here again. We see Paul exhorting the Philippians to remain joyful as they are pursuing Christ. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 3 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And yet, Paul is aware of persecution, of pride and ambition, even of false teachers that are threatening this church. And so, instruction is needed, not only instruction, but warning. And we see that in verse 2, where he warns them to beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, those who are insisting to add works to the grace of God, those who are seeking to place their confidence in the flesh and have others do the same, according to verse 3. They esteem their own self-righteousness, and they perceive prestige and human achievement to be that which 
pleases God. Yet we know that Paul, as he reflects back on his own life and sees that in his own life by far superior to anybody else, he simply, when accounting his life, counts those to be loss, altogether loss. And so two weeks ago, you'll remember, as we were in verse 7, we considered Paul's conversion. And we saw how that conversion really out of the regeneration of his heart where he was given a heart of flesh where previously there had been a heart of stone and how that resulted in giving him a a whole new outlook on life. All that Paul had invested in, his life's work, all that he believed to be profitable when he tallied those together, they amounted to nothing. And less than nothing, actually, it was a detrimental loss, as you'll remember. And we explored the initial condition of Paul's heart. You may remember how he describes in his testimonies in Acts 22 and Acts 26, how he had murder and hatred on his heart, how he was seeking to destroy those who held to the way of Christ. But that heart didn't remain so. We saw in the moment of regener- we saw that re- moment of regeneration in Paul, where we recognized in this one question there was a transformation that took place when he said, "What shall I do, Lord?" It was no longer his own will, but was the will of Christ that he desired from then on. His desires, his affections, his ambitions, his familial connection, all changed in an instant. Now, we could have we could have gone through this text here and just simply worked through it doctrinally because we see some rich doctrinal themes in this text. For instance, in verses 4 through 6 as Paul's describing his former life, we really know that we could just lump some of that into one word, condemnation. All of that self-righteousness, all of that, those pursuits really would have just resulted in his condemnation. This is before his conversion. And then we could have seen in verses 7 and 8 the regeneration, the conversion, the gifts of both repentance and faith that were given to Paul. In verse 9, we see Paul's justification, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ a new legal standing before God, which Paul now enjoys. And in verse 10, we see, in a sense, a positional and progressive sanctification as he describes to know Christ and be conformed to to his death. And then finally, in verse 11, we see his future anticipation, namely that glorification to which he looks forward to is attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So we could have gone through this and just really laid out those doctrines very carefully and clearly. But for our purposes this morning again, and as we saw our purpose last time that we were in this text, we really want to take a look at the heart of the man, at Paul's heart. We want to go to the place where his emotions lie, the seat of his emotions, the place where his affections can be known. 
and where we see the delight that he has. And so this morning, as we consider verses 8 through 11, let's again consider the heart of the man that is expressed in these verses. And this should really challenge you. This should challenge you to consider your own heart for Christ, to evaluate how you know Christ, and to consider if and how knowing Christ how knowing Christ governs all that you do. It was Puritan Thomas Manton who said, Christianity doth not abrogate, that means nullify, affections. Christianity doth not nullify affections, but regulates them. And that's what we see here with Paul, that his affections are regulated by his relationship that genuine relationship that he has with Christ. I would submit to you that there is no such thing as a dispassionate follower of Christ. If one truly knows Christ, both personally and intimately, the life of that person will unashamedly manifest his or her relationship with Christ wherever he or she is. It says, Paul wrote, and we saw in chapter 1 and verse 27, where he gave this command, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the conduct becoming of the believer. And Paul's life really exemplifies this for us. And we'll consider that this morning. And so we'll see in Philippians 3 and verses 8 through 11, how Paul shares four effects on a Christian's heart, on his own heart, really, that come from knowing Christ Jesus personally as Lord. And he gives this to us so that we too can evaluate our own heart's affection for Christ. So four effects on the Christian's heart that come from knowing Christ personally as Lord. And we'll use this to evaluate ourselves, to evaluate our own affection for Christ And so I've broken this up into four parts. Nothing fancy. First of all, we'll look at an appraisal in verse 8. Then we'll look at benefits at the end of verse 8 and and then verse 9. And we'll look at a connection in verse 10. And then finally, uh, destination in verse 11. So appraisal, benefits, connection, Destination. This is the A, B, C, and D, really, of the effects on the Christian's heart. First, let's look at the appraisal, this appraisal that Paul gives here in verse 8. So train your eyes on your text. More than that, he writes, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Well, Paul is certainly compelled to write more to us than simply what he wrote in verse 7. There's further clarification needed. And so you'll notice a couple of changes between verses 7 and 8. First of all, we saw that, we see that what Paul has counted as loss in verse 7, that being those things that he described in verses Four through six, his pedigree, the advantages of personal achievement and his 
family connections. All of that he counted as loss. But in verse 8 here, he expands that list. He expands it to include all things, all without exception. You see, verses 4 through 6 are not an exhaustive list of things that could be considered as loss in the life of a believer. And certainly, Paul recognizes that. But then notice that there's a second change here. We need to look a little more carefully at the text for that. In verse 7, Paul writes that he has counted as loss. And he's speaking really in the perfect tense here. And as I've said in the past, and we'll say again, this perfect tense is used to indicate a past realization, something that has occurred in the past, but then has ongoing present significance or ongoing and present consequences in the life of the person. But in verse 8, he changes verb tense. Now he's speaking in the present tense. And so he's saying really that he continues his accounting practice in real time to consider all things as loss. So he has in the past with ongoing significance. And now as he expands the, the categories to include all things as loss, this is his day-to-day practice, day in, day out. He counts all things that would threaten his wholehearted allegiance to Christ as loss. But why? What has caused Paul to have this perspective? Well, he tells us, literally because of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. This is what has brought about this new realization. And we need to understand this rightly. The day, you think back to the day that, well, maybe you can't think back to the day that you first walked, when you first effectively walked, took your first steps, realized that you had a confidence to do so, you determined from that point on never again to crawl because it was no longer necessary. And really, that's what we see here with Paul now seeing the surpassing value of knowing Christ, he is not to return back to his old ways. It's like going from a trike to a bicycle, never to return to the trike because there is a better way, a better way that, that obviously then does not require going back. And so this knowledge then, this knowledge that is being described by Paul the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This knowledge is um, experimental and it's experiential. You see, when when you learned to walk, there was an experiment that took place, an experience that you received, and that informed your moving forward. And it's the same with Paul as he considers the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This isn't just merely a head knowledge, an intellectual knowledge of Christ. No, he has has experienced the effect that Christ has had on his life. He's seen it in tangible ways. And so he does not go back. We also need to consider this. Consider 
the timing that Paul is writing to the Philippians here, the time in, in Paul's life. This is two decades or more, perhaps even close to three decades after his Damascus Road conversion. And still he's doing an accounting in his life. And he's come to this conclusion. That's significant. You know, even as I've thought about my own life as I've been studying through this text and how Christ is more meaningful to me today than he was back in 2004. And I look forward to continuing to know him more. Well, Paul couldn't be more resolved. And that's because he knows. He knows the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul has decades of analysis under his belt. He's reflected on his experiences with Christ and in Christ. He's exercised his faith in Christ with results. He's weighed the truths of Christ day after day after day. He's observed how Christ has transformed lives even as he has proclaimed the gospel in many parts of the world. He's practiced life in Christ daily. And in that, he has found contentment and joy and unity in Christ. And he's done so submissively and obediently to Christ who is his Lord. He has studied and pursued Christ further longing for Christ. And all of this has fueled his love for Christ and his continued, continual and ongoing dependence upon Christ. Paul has found that no one and nothing is better than Christ. Why? Why has Paul found this? Why is Paul articulating this? Well, I think we see that we see that as we listen to how Paul identifies Christ. He says, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, you may remember back in chapter 2, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 45. And we read this in what he wrote in chapter 2 in verses 10 and 11, where he wrote, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we saw, if you remember back, we saw that there is really a proclamation by Paul that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Lord. And Paul is essentially then saying this very same thing that Thomas says in John's gospel, where he says, my Lord and my God. This is Paul's same recognition. And it's no wonder then that he emphasizes the outcome of this careful calculation that he's just done, where he's been weighing the gains and the loss. And he has found that all else Everything, completely, in its entirety, all is loss when compared to Christ. Paul knows this from experience, does he not? Think about Paul's life. For, for Christ, Paul has suffered the loss of all things. We see this in verse 8 here again. This has been Paul's experience. Paul's life is both 
the test and the proof of this. He has experienced much loss. No doubt he's, he's experienced the loss of former acquaintances. He has experienced the loss of family members and of countrymen and their friendships. Even other Christians have sought to cause him distress. We saw that in chapter 1 and verse 17. There has been much loss for Paul's love for Christ. And if I consider it, even as he's writing these words and can likely hear the sound of the chains that, that bind him, he is, they are, they're reminding him that he at the same time is without possessions. He's without a home. He has no way to provide for his most basic needs. He's without freedom. That's loss, right? He has suffered much for the sake of Christ. And yet, Paul has everything. He has absolutely everything that he could possibly need because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And then, if you just look back at verse 8, to strengthen his point, Paul refers to these things as rubbish. This is a crude term. It means waste, sometimes used to describe the scraps that would be thrown to the dogs. And even more extreme, some translations will will use the word dung or excrement, human excrement. This is what Paul is, is using to describe all things that he considers to be loss. He indicates in using this term that there is a complete and utter worthlessness to them. In no way do they bring him any profit. Well, we could ask this question. Have you counted, have you considered or counted all things as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ? Have you counted all things as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ? You'll remember a couple of weeks back, we went to the end of the book of Acts where we learned of Paul's journey to Rome He was on rough and violent seas, 276 souls aboard, and they ultimately had to throw the precious cargo over. And that word loss is used there to describe the actions of what they do, because had they hung on to it, it would have been to their own detriment. Their survival was at stake. Now, I have no doubt that those 276 souls, when they reflect back on that voyage and realize that it was absolutely necessary to throw that cargo aboard, uh, overboard, to jettison all of it in its entirety, that they didn't regret that because they knew that their lives had been spared. What are the boasts? What are the boasts in your life standing in the way of knowing Christ as Paul did. There can be many other things that we would deem as precious cargo in our lives that yet need to be jettisoned, that need to be thrown overboard, that need to be viewed as loss for the surpassing value of knowing 
Christ. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's a focus on on money, on, on that as gain in some way in your life. Maybe it's a job status, something that you cling to, something that you, in your own mind, esteem, and that it impacts your daily decisions. And at the same time, that Christ then is not seen as glorious. Maybe it's success in business. Maybe it's political success. I know that I've seen in, in politicians, even as some have proclaimed or professed to, to know Christ, and yet in their decision-making, it seems like they compartmentalize aspects of their life and that Christ doesn't apply in certain times and circumstances. Maybe it's friendships and partnerships that you currently have with those that are still in the world, and you cling to those. And while you cling to those, you remain silent on Christ. He's not, he's not apparent to those who you are interacting with. There can be many different things that people will lay claim to in their own hearts that they would boast in. Maybe not even outwardly, but just simply inwardly. Maybe it's a denominational alignment that you have where there are hills that you die on. And the hills that you die on are more evident to others than the surpassing value of knowing Christ in your life. Maybe it's a version of the Bible that you use. I know that I've interacted with some who I wish they knew Christ more and they knew less of the version that they use. Maybe it's material benefits or comforts that you enjoy that you're just not willing to part with. Perhaps it's maintaining emotional stability because you know if you, if you show your personal relationship with Christ, it's going to cost you in some way. It's going to bring hardship, maybe with families, maybe, maybe with family members, maybe with friends, in some way to maintain that emotional stability that you enjoy currently, you remain silent on Christ. He's not evident in your life in certain times. Or maybe it's just simply the time that you use, how you use your time. What consumes your, your, the time that you have? Is it entertainment? What, what consumes your thoughts? Well, we know what consumed Paul's thoughts. He continually looked to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, that personal relationship that he had. This wasn't just simply a a knowledge about the gospel and and the effect of God's grace in his life. No, this was a personal relationship that he had with Christ. What's keeping knowing Christ near and dear to your heart? What's keeping you from that? Consider that this morning. And so one effect on the Christian's heart from knowing Christ personally as Lord is that he appraises, he properly appraises the value of Christ as surpassing all else. This should be us. This should be us. Let's look secondly then at the benefits. We've seen the, Paul's appraisal. There's nothing more valuable to him. But consider the benefits that are shared here 
Then at the end of verse 8 and then verse 9 as well. Again, train your eyes down at your copy of God's word. So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, there are ongoing and great benefits to knowing Christ. We see that in Paul's use of the words, so that he is giving us purpose here. He is stating his continual goal, his aim. And that is that forsaking all else, Paul seeks to lay hold of Christ, to cleave to Christ, to continually make Christ his own. To gain Christ is how he words it. This literally means to obtain an advantage, to acquire by effort or some kind of investment. And only loss and rubbish stand in the way of Paul meeting this objective. But how will Paul gain Christ? How does Paul gain Christ? Well, he gains Christ by setting his ambition strictly on that one singular entry on the credit side of his life's ledger. That singular entry being Christ. Christ is his gain. Christ is his profit. And he invests himself wholeheartedly then in Christ. Now, he uses an aorist verb here and that essentially removes the aspect of time from what he is describing here. And so we need to understand that this is this gain that, that Paul is speaking of, to gain Christ, this is his current ambition, his current pursuit, but it's also his lifelong pursuit. And so there's a sense of an already not yet reality that Paul is giving to us here. In Christ, Paul has already gained favor and fellowship. In the person of Christ, Paul has come to know the mysteries of God's wisdom, of his grace, of God's love. But Paul anticipates gaining Christ, yet still future, when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, in chapter 1, verse 22. And he expresses that he has a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And so not only is he in favor and fellowship of Christ currently, but he also at the same time looks ahead to gain Christ, ahead to that time when he will be forever in his presence. Paul looks to gain Christ, but there's a second goal here as well. We shouldn't overlook that. That is to be found in him at the beginning of verse 9, to be found in him. And again, there's a sense of an already not yet reality that Paul is describing here. You see, this verb here is passive. And that means that when a careful and purposeful search of Paul's life is made, that he will be found currently and also in the future. He'll be found hidden securely with Christ as we would read in Colossians 3.3. And not only secured in Christ, but he also abides in Christ. He 
He's walking in the same manner as Christ walked. He's keeping the commandments that Christ has given him. He's loving others in the church. The love of God being perfected in him as he does such. He's confessing that Jesus is the son of God everywhere he goes and to every person that he meets. He is loving God and he is demonstrating that love for God by his obedience. I've just simply borrowed some some ways that abiding is demonstrated in the book in the letter of first John. And so he is secure in Christ, he's abiding in Christ. He will be found as such, he desires to be, but then he's also found in union with Christ. How is Paul's union with Christ displayed most abundantly. Think about that. How is his union with Christ put on most vibrant display? Well, we see that in the remainder of verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul knew even as he would write then in 1 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this was, this was Paul's life. As he, as he knew Christ, he knew at the same time that he was found in the righteous robes of Christ, those, those filthy rags that he had formerly worn, all of that former life that he had participated in, that, self, that self-righteousness that he, had, that he had pursued, works-based righteousness, all lost because now he recognizes the union that he enjoys with Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. Paul altogether denied the thought of any righteousness proceeding from him or related to his own person. In fact, he disowns that thought here. Paul, on his own, could make no claim on righteousness. And he shows this again to us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, where he writes, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This so clearly articulates the very righteousness that Paul understood he now possessed that being a gift of grace, not by any works of the law, but simply through faith in Christ. And in his heart, Paul then knew the source of all the benefits, all the benefits that he had been graciously given, that he would gain Christ, that he would be found in Christ, that he he would in fact be seen in the righteous robes of Christ. That he gained Christ and that he would 
gain further in, in Christ's presence is what he looked towards, that he would be found in him, hidden securely, abiding, and in union. In fact, granted faith so as to be credited to Paul as righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given him. So we've seen two effects then on the heart, right? Paul appraises Christ as having surpassing value. And he knows Christ personally, but not only does he appraise Christ, thus he also desires these benefits to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to to have the righteousness of Christ before God. Well, third, let's take a look then at verse 10 and the connection, the affiliation that he describes here. This is about his union with Christ. And so we see in verse 10, as Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul now has already stated some purpose, some aims that he has, goals that he has to gain Christ, to be found in him. But here's an ultimate purpose. That is to know Christ simply, personally, intimately. To know Christ relationally in the power of his resurrection. And then to know Christ experientially through the fellowship of his sufferings. How can Paul possibly know of the power of Christ's resurrection? How does he know of this? Well, we'll remember that Paul was drawn to a salvific relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see then the power of God manifested in this. We read about it in Romans 1 and 16 where Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's the power of God demonstrated in salvation. And again in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 where he writes, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross demonstrates clearly the power of God. Only the power of God brings new birth. Only the power of God brings about a spiritual resurrection. And that's what Paul is speaking of here, a spiritual resurrection. We can understand this further by going to Romans chapter 6. I invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 6. He describes this resurrection in this way. Beginning in verse 4. He writes, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He goes on to say, our old self crucified with him, no longer slaves to sin. And in verse seven, for he who has died is free from sin. This is a spiritual resurrection that 
Paul has realized, that he enjoys, that has connected him then to Christ and knowing Christ. One commentator writes this, the power of his resurrection is life-giving power. It is the power that God uses to bring about and sustain the new life that the Christian receives from Christ and shares with him. So this very same power that really brought about Paul's new life in Christ is also the same power that then sustains him daily as he goes about fulfilling the call that had been given to him, the call to ministry. The power of God mercifully made a spiritually dead and transgressing Paul alive together with Christ. And it's the same power that caused Paul then to write, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. The power of Christ's resurrection has resulted in Paul's life, in the defeat of sin, in the defeat of death, and has granted him eternal life. And the power of Christ's resurrection also provides the incentive and the strength, the confident strength to share in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul's life bears witness to this. We could go to many passages. We know that to him it was given to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the name of Christ. We read that in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 14, Paul's already being stoned. He's dragged out of the city and stoned, left for dead, thought for dead. What does he do? He gets back up, gets right back into the city. The next day he goes on to Derby and then proclaims the gospel, makes many disciples and says this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the pattern now of Paul's life daily. He's run out of Thessalonica, run out of Berea in chapter 17 of Acts. And then in Acts chapter 20, he testifies to the elders as he's preparing to depart. He talks to the Ephesian elders and he says, and now behold, bound by the spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. We wouldn't welcome this, would we? But we should. Christ is worthy. We, we ought to. He goes on to say, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. He knew that he needed to finish the work that Christ had given him to do. And that work being to testify to the gospel of Christ. We've been given that same mandate to go forth and to proclaim Christ to the world. We need to do this and not to consider our own lives of any account. We need to really know Christ on that level. We know that in 2 Corinthians 11, this text that we just read for a scripture reading last week, we heard of the labors, the imprisonments, the beatings without number, the oftentimes in danger. Five times, 39 lashes he received. Three times, beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times, shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, he goes on to say. 
frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, from countrymen and Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers among false brethren, laboring and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, all compounded with the daily pressure on him of his concern for all the churches. So while he's going through all of that physical suffering in his mind, he's also suffering because of his concern for the church that he has. This is Paul's life. This is Paul's life. And I think Spurgeon sums it up nicely when he describes this excellent knowledge that, that Paul has of Christ's suffering. He writes, Paul had, in a degree, felt Christ's motives, Christ's love for man, Christ's zeal for God, Christ's self-sacrifice, Christ's readiness to die on behalf of the truth. This is how Paul knew Christ. And this is why he suffered. It was an inevitable consequence for Paul. But it's not only an inevitable consequence for Paul. We know that he has written this same thing to us, to the Philippians. As he wrote this letter in Philippians 1.29, he wrote, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is, this is what we can expect to experience as well. And we know if we think back to when we went through that passage that this, this word granted is really describing a grace gift that's given to us. This is graciously given to us by God, not only to believe, but to suffer for the name of Christ. And we shouldn't be worried. Christian, you shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be worried. You should be encouraged. Second Corinthians 1.5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I have no doubt that Paul, as he's languishing in a Roman prison, Roman imprisonment, he is receiving daily comfort, abundant through Christ. In 1 Peter 4 and 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Let's remember that these sufferings that we will encounter, these afflictions are momentary. Let's look ahead. And in 1 Peter 2 and verses 21 through 25, the apostle writes, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So we can expect this. And yet, We've been given a pattern as to, 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 to practice as we go through suffering. We know that when reviled, Christ did not revile, and so we will not revile. We will not cast threats on those who cause our suffering, but we will keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. This is what we do. This is part of knowing Christ. And so this really describes the connection with Christ. But let's go just a little bit further here in this text. You see, Paul uses an interesting term here 
it's, it's translated or rendered as being conformed, sumorphidomenos in the Greek. And it's that, it's that prefix, soon, that can be just simply translated as together with. And so Paul uses compound words here where he attaches this idea of together with in order for us to better understand our union with Christ. And the evidence in Paul's epistles is, is rich. Consider this, that, that in Romans 8 and verse 17, Paul writes that we suffer together with Christ. In Romans 6 and verse 6, he says that our old self was crucified together with Christ. In Romans 6, 8, he says that we have died together with Christ. In Romans 6, 5, he says that we have become identified together with him in the likeness of his death. In Colossians 2, 12, we have been buried together with Christ. And then in Colossians 2.13, we also have been made alive together with him. We've been raised together with him in Colossians 3.1. And going back to Romans 8.17, we have been made fellow heirs together with Christ. And we will be glorified together with Christ according to Romans 8.17 as well. And not only that, but then According to 2 Timothy 2.12, we will reign together with Christ. All of these words have this soon prefix to show us that union that we enjoy with Christ. So many ways that we are connected. And so through knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death, Paul displays the connection that he has to Christ, the close affiliation, unbreakable, that he has with Christ. Well, let's consider finally, and very briefly, this fourth point here. The fourth effect is that he is fixated then on a destination. He has an arrival point that he is thinking about. We see this in verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And in this, we see Paul's humility displayed. If we consider a very literal rendering of the Greek here, it reads like this. If somehow I might attain to the out-resurrection from among the dead. Out-resurrection. This is a different term that he uses when we compare to the word resurrection in verse 10. He's employing a different term here. And what he's describing here is the state or condition of coming up from among the dead. We know that at Christ's return, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, of those who, are, who died in Christ. Those who died without Christ will remain in the grave. But those who died in Christ will be raised. And that is what Paul is anticipating. He's anticipating the return of Christ here. He's anticipating that the chosen would be raised up and taken on that day. And then ushered into the, into the presence of Christ that he 
knows into the presence of Christ eternally. And so we've seen how Paul knows Christ very personally, very intimately. To Paul, there was none greater. But is Christ precious to you? Would you forsake all else to gain this treasure? You know, I think of an illustration where there's a a father who has enjoyed a very good career at doing something. And it's been so good and so valuable to him that he desires for his, his son to follow in his footsteps, right? What the father values, he then values to, for, for others. If there's something that he values for himself, then he values it, he also values it for others. Well, I think this is the way we ought to look at this, right? If we know Christ and value Christ, then we ought to also value Christ for others. We ought to desire to to share Christ, to proclaim Christ, to call sinners to repentance, to, to share with them this newness of life that we enjoy, all because of our relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you tell others of the surpassing value of knowing Christ? You know people in your life who beam when they speak of Christ. Is that you? We know that we have not suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. But I ask you, have you abandoned all of that this world has to offer for the sake of Christ? For the sake of knowing Christ. To know him more. To cast aside all distraction. And are you using all that he has placed at your disposal to then proclaim him? We know that this was Paul's heart. That he appraised Christ as surpassing, uh, as having the surpassing value. And that knowing him surpassed all things in this world. We know that he gained many benefits from from Christ, from knowing Christ, the advantages that came from that to gain him, to be found in him, to be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And we know the connection, the close connection, the affiliation that we enjoy as a result of knowing Christ, that we are in union with him. And then we also know the end. We know that ultimately, when our time here on earth is done, that we would be ushered into the presence of of Christ. One Puritan writes, to forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, to leave eternity for a moment, to disregard reality for a shadow. Let that not be you this morning. If you are here this morning and without Christ, I would say that you need to Throw yourself at the mercy of God. You have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And you are without a way of reconciling yourself to God. But he has sent his son, his son Jesus, to go to the cross, to suffer, to die for sin. To pay the penalty for sinners. 
and that that penalty can be paid on your behalf as well. But it requires that you unconditionally surrender. You submit your will to his. You turn from your sin this day, that you turn to Christ and believe in what the cross has accomplished. And then that you would live in this knowledge of Christ, that you would eagerly pursue knowing Christ more and more. If you confess your sin this day, you will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful, so thankful that you have given us Christ. Thankful that we have this relationship with him. And thankful for all that that relationship entails, that we are found in him, that we have been credited with his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but his righteousness. That's how we stand before you. Well, Father, and because of that, you also have given us life and you are sustaining us even now. God, I pray that there would be some here, even this morning, that would eagerly desire to know Christ, whose hearts you have stirred, that they would come before him, that they would proclaim him as Lord, that they too would come to an understanding of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Help us. Help us to, to live in a way that is unashamed, that we would proclaim Christ, that Christ would be worn on our sleeve, that our relationship with Christ would be instructive and inform all that we do, that there would be nothing that would take his place. Well, Father, grow us in this knowledge, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.